0: I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady.
1: This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we have an episode that is covering a topic that's pretty heavy, and it's it's a topic that we've wanted to discuss for a long time, and we just didn't really know how to bring it up or how to go into it. Um We're going to talk about a patient population that has gone unnoticed for decades. We just wanted to start this off with a disclaimer. You probably don't want to listen to this with small children in the car. Um, This is going to be some pretty heavy and pretty raw material. We're going to discuss human trafficking and essentially patients who have been sexually exploited um, and how to recognize them and how to treat them.
0: We had a chance to sit down um, with just two incredible people and you hear from them, you're going to just instantly be drawn to what they have to say uh, through their passion uh, and the work that they're doing. So we sat down with uh, Jess Roth and uh, Faith Robinson. They both work for an organization in Atlanta, Georgia called Out of Darkness, which is an anti-trafficking ministry of the Atlanta Dream Center. Their mission is to reach, rescue, and restore all victims of commercial sexual exploitation. So Jess Roth uh, got in, uh, involved with Out of Darkness several years ago as a volunteer and then started working for them full-time. Uh, she is uh, the community training coordinator, and Faith Robinson is the outreach coordinator Uh, for Out of Darkness. Uh, These two women have dedicated their entire lives to literally going in the trenches uh, and making uh, relationships uh, with these women and children who are being uh, trafficked and exploited. Uh, They go out at all hours of the night um, and uh, they have really done some good work and they don't just understand, they actually live it with these women. They do. They form relationships with them, friendships with them, uh, and their ultimate goal to be able to get them out of this uh, horrible environment. As you hear from uh, Jess and Faith and what they have to say, um, I think uh, like Brandon and me, you're going to start thinking back to patient encounters that you've had. And some of the pieces of the puzzle here are going are to start fitting. and You're going to realize that you have actually come across uh, people who have been exploited and trafficked. Uh, and that some of those signs there you just weren't familiar with. And I think that's really going to help us treat these patients uh, in the future.
1: Yeah. And in fact, it was an incredibly sobering statistic to hear that over 50% of human trafficking victims come across a medical provider at some point in time. And, you know, as Jason just alluded to, it's just, it's gut wrenching to think back to calls that we have both had. And now knowing what we know now, we recognize that,
0: you know, this really is evil personified and we dedicate our lives as medical professionals to saving lives. We talk about things like procedures that we do, interventions that we do to save a life. This is something that we literally will be able to save a life and impact another human being
1: simply by the way we recognize and interact with them. So after listening to this episode, we really hope that you guys develop the same passion that we feel for this subject now. And if that's the case, we really want you to reach out and go to our website, www.medicclasscitizen.com forward slash out of darkness. We've we've decided that it's incredibly important that we share these resources that uh, Jess and Faith gave to us that we share these nationwide resources so that listeners all over the country and all over the world can find resources on how they can a get involved or B they can provide an avenue for a human trafficking victim to have a, a way out. So um, visit our website at that link and uh, look through those resources for more information there.
0: All right, Jessica and Faye, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So uh, well, we're, asked you guys to come and talk about today is something that I think a lot of people uh, may loosely know about, but not uh, too in depth. And I think this is one of the more important things that uh, just not in, not just in EMS, but in healthcare in general that uh, we really need to know about and discuss. So would you guys just kind of introduce yourselves and tell us uh, the organization that you're with?
2: Um, Yeah, I'm Jess Roth and um, work with Out of Darkness. I've been there for five years now. And out of darkness is the anti-sex trafficking department uh, of the Atlanta Dream Center. Um, So we do many different outreaches in the Atlanta area, but also run the Georgia um, sex trafficking hotline, Um, have rescue teams that go pick up women who call for help. And then we have a safe home. Um, It's crisis safe house. So we, house the girls and then help them get um, placed in a long-term program that can help them rehabilitate. So
3: that's kind of what we do.
0: Awesome. And Faith, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah. So my name's Faith. Um, I have been volunteering with Out of Darkness for about five years. Um, I moved here from Illinois to kind of get involved. I read a documentary or watched a documentary, read a couple books. Um, heard that Atlanta was a hot spot, So I came down and um, started going to the clubs. Um, I did strip club ministry and outreach for about five years um, and then came on as staff in February. Um, and so I'm actually the outreach coordinator um, for, the, for Out of Darkness. And so we do strip club ministry. We also do street outreach um, in some of the red light districts in Atlanta. And then we also do outreach in the jails. Um, so I'm kind of over all of those
0: so before before we move in uh, to some of that tell us uh, a couple more things about yourself what kind of has, what has drawn you personally each of you uh, to this type of work
2: um, well for me it started through um, my church actually I worked at a church and they had done some stuff with um, trafficking, a fundraiser for Out of Darkness, um, was on a mission trip that had um, started a anti-trafficking ministry there um, in Bulgaria, and it was just the Lord kept everywhere I turned. That's what I saw. And so that's kind of how I got started in it and then um, found Out of Darkness a way to get connected in the Atlanta area and just fell in love with the work that they do and the women that are there.
3: Mine's a little less moving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, cause someone asked me recently and I'm like, where did I, why did I first like start getting interested in this? I was 17 looking at Hooter applications, like, you know, about to graduate, go work there. And I started, uh, I found Christianity, became a believer, and started just hearing about the horrible things that happen when you start going down that path of selling your body, essentially. Um, And so that, which just really moved my heart, because you know I could have definitely seen myself in that situation because I was believing the lies that our culture and our society has told me, told me, you know, about my body being a commodity, you know, and yeah, I'm going to work that. And I just I saw the other side of it when I stepped back and read and watched like some real stories of that and so that completely changed my perspective um and then i just went the other way and it's like i'm gonna help everyone like not everyone but help the people that i meet just you know to to find the truth in that lie um, and be able to escape that that path that leads to some really dark and horrible things um and i think Yeah, it's been neat because these girls, these women that we meet, I mean, they come from, you know, a horrible situation, but they're still people, you know, and I think that we like to step like, we like to see it as something that's in another country or something that's never going to happen to us. But when we meet them and talk to them, like they're normal people that just made some bad decisions because of, you know, some some luck not luck, but like different things in life that came their way and, you know, some things that happened to them and, but they're still just like anybody else.
0: So let's define that if we can. Now we, we use the word trafficking. Um, define for us a little bit about what you mean by tra- uh, trafficking and the kind of the different levels of it. Um, you know, we can, we can get into in, in a little bit about ages and specifics, but um, Jess, what do you actually mean by trafficking or trafficked people?
2: Right. So um, with trafficking, the it's anybody who is, um, their body is sold. Somebody else is selling their body either through force, fraud, or coercion. Um, but we also, there's such a stigma with trafficking or, I guess, a common misperception that it means that you have to be kidnapped and then taken to a different country, similar to the movie Taken. And so that's what a lot of, even my brain of trafficking, what it was like. So um, now we're starting to use the term um, commercial sexual exploitation. And that's in the industry, I guess, now is a more common um, definition of what it is because their trafficking could also be exploitation through the porn industry, um, in the strip clubs, not everybody's there by choice, or they have a pimp running them in the strip club and then selling them after. Um, so there's definitely just different types of exploitation that happen. So I would say that's probably a more becoming more widely used as commercial sexual exploitation. But it's anybody that's um, a person is being used um, by force, fraud or, co- or coercion.
1: So when we, whenever we define it, I think another very important thing to know is specifically the scope of the problem. I mean, how how big are we talking about? And and you can both you can go into both locally here in the state of Georgia, but nationally and globally, if you know. I mean, just how how many uh, people are are exploited uh, on a you know within a given time frame.
2: So statistics, statistics are really difficult in this industry because it's so underreported. Um, people don't like to report themselves as being exploited or trafficked. And even the women that we see in our house, um, they don't like to until they call us, they wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as being exploited or trafficked because of the mind manipulation that happens. Also, it's very underground. So all of these statistics I'm gonna give, you have to kind of know it's very broad, um, that there's anywhere from um, 20 to 40 million people um, worldwide that are being trafficked each year. Um, but that's, I mean, 20 to 40 million is a really big gap because different studies show different things. Um, in Georgia alone, though, several studies have shown that an average of um, about 20,000 um, men purchase sex every month. And that's just in Georgia. Um, so it's a, it's a big, big business. And um, the the reason that it's on the rise partly as demand and um that drug dealers who have become pimps um we've i've seen some documentaries and interviews of um people that are now like some guys that aren't pips anymore but they said the reason they switched from dealing drugs to dealing women is because they sell drugs and then their drugs are gone. They sell a woman and then they can continue to sell her multiple times. Um, so it's a re- she's a reoccurring commodity for them. So those are just kind of some general numbers I guess. Does that help?
0: Yeah. And then let's, let's get it a little bit more, a little more focused. And, you know, we have a lot of people that listen to this uh, outside of Georgia, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we were just to kind of use the example, because this is what you guys are dealing with. Uh, So if it's that many in Georgia, if we kind of move it in a little bit closer, what do those numbers do? when we talk about a a big city like Atlanta or a metro area, what do those numbers look like?
2: Um, So within the metro Atlanta area, I'm not, I wouldn't be a good, um, I wouldn't have a good number on statistic wise, but I would say that it's not all Metro Atlanta, like
3: over 50% of the buyers come from outside 285. Um, I was looking at a map uh, recently, and definitely any areas that, you know, are along the border of other countries are huge hotspots. So Florida is just a huge area um anywhere along like the california area like bordering mexico la san diego definitely hot spots and then any big cities obviously are going to be cuz trafficking like like i uh, just said drug trafficking sex trafficking kind of goes hand in hand you know we hear a lot about that our girls are running drugs you know as well as having to do other sex acts so it kind of goes hand in hand and we know that you know drugs are there are a problem in smaller towns but big cities it's going to be much more of a problem um so any any big city la new york chicago atlanta like definitely going to be a hot spot um we hear a lot that the airport in atlanta because it's so busy is one of the huge reasons why you know we have such a problem here
0: so when it comes to you know what are when it comes to uh say ages or genders what are some of the the bigger misconceptions um, you know, as, as a lay person thinks about trafficking um, and, and I put a lot of healthcare professionals even in there as well. Um, what are some of the big misconceptions that you've found that people have about um, especially uh, women um, or, or men too, I guess, I guess uh, males get trafficked as well. Um, but when it comes to uh, gender or ages, what are some of those misconceptions?
2: I think one misconception is that, um, like the a girl who's being trafficked or commercially you know sexually exploited that it's going to be a girl that's like 18 years old and she's got her mini skirt on and high heels and that's not what we see Um, but that's what you see in the movies a lot and so the average age of entry into trafficking is 11 to 14 so it starts young and if that's average that means that they're many girls younger than that and from the stories of the women that we see um, many of them started around that age or even younger um, about being exploited by somebody they know and then run away get picked up by a pimp Um, and then also i think one of the shocking things to me as i got into it is that it also is a lot older we'll have women that are 50 years old that come to our safe house um, because then that's not who I would normally think of, but because they've been exploited their whole life, they might not be controlled by a pimp right now, but they're still prostituting because that's the only way they know how to make money. Mm
3: -hmm. And they're, it's definitely domestic victims, you know, Mm -hmm. like Jess mentioned the Taken movie, um, which takes place overseas. I mean, yeah, it was a american but it showed a bunch of victims that you know were foreign and that's not that's not what happens you know i think people like to think that because it makes them feel safe you know that's not going to happen to me or my kid but yeah it does it's definitely it's happening in our backyards not not from other countries but from the kids that live here
0: so take take us through how does how does one become traffic what are the more common ways that people enter into this
2: so um, definitely some risk factors are an unstable home life, um, so dysfunctional home, um, maybe that they're in the foster care system, not to say that, I mean, there's lots of great foster families, but just the nature of moving from home to home to home. Um, and then runaways are a huge target um, for pimps. Um any type of history of physical or sexual abuse. I've noticed that even with the women that have come through our particular house, I would say 80% of them experience sexual abuse as children. And so that has warped their view of what their sexuality is to them. Um, so that's a huge risk factor. Um, substance abuse within the family. Um, several of the girls will tell us that their mom started, selling them because she realized she made more from selling her daughter than she did herself and she needed to feed her drug habit. Um, So I think a lot of it goes to family life and um, stuff like that as far as risk factors and even now the, um, the rise of the LGBTQ community has led a lot of people they feel you know, like they aren't loved by their friends and family once they come out. And so then they run away, feel a sense of shame, and then um, they're picked up as well by pimps.
3: Yeah, I think if if you guys have seen the Epstein documentary on Netflix, um, it was, it's a, prime example of the demographic that is targeted usually, you know, those girls were from like poor homes. They had drug habits or their their parents had drug habits. Um, I remember one story, a girl said that she watched her stepdad kill her brother right in front of her. Um, and I mean like they, yeah, poverty, they, you know, they ran away essentially and that's when Epstein's guys would find them or he would go pursue them at the school because he knows that, you know, the kids that came to this school lived in poverty they didn't have money for food or for, especially not for clothes or shoes or anything nice that they wanted. Um, and so that's, that's a huge, huge risk factor. Um, I just Googled today just to see like, how common it is for the, for the kidnapping technique to happen. And Polaris is this big, uh, uh, like research group that does research on um, trafficking and things. And they said that less than 10% of boys and girls that get trafficked, um, are, is going to be like a kidnapping in like a white van. Um, and so that's, that's kind of huge to know. That's, that's what we expect it to be. And it's, it's not going to be like that. So I think, um, focusing on the social justice issues of race poverty like you know not as good schools in some areas like that's a way better time and place to spend your time and energy than like worrying about the um, like the Wayfair the Pizzagate things that we have heard about recently
1: yeah and unfortunately it's those the the white van stereotype that uh that people have that's what they're looking for that's what they expect i mean there's the other day while I was trying to do some research before we had this discussion, I found a video on YouTube of a dad walking his son through a you know a food court, and this guy just runs up and hits the dad and tries to take the son. I'm just like I don't know how commonplace <laughs> is that, but you know like you're saying, and that's what people are looking for yeah. but that's that's not the case at all so <laughs>
2: Yeah, and that I mean it definitely happens, but fewer than, you know, than other ways. And I even now too, like um, we've seen a huge rise in recruitment over social media. So that's a big um, target area. Is the pimps are smart, they're going to go where the, where the kids are, and the kids are on their phones. So that's a huge recruitment tool that also broadens, you know, the broadens the pool for pimps to look for kids because it's not always the runaways now. Now, you know, they have the affluent child who has access to phone and computer and is looking for somebody to love them. And so they gain this false sense of security with a stranger over social media, chat rooms, stuff. And they like to be told that they're beautiful and pretty and, you know, they, they know the ways to manipulate. Um, so that also, you know, just broadens the, the spectrum of girls that, and boys that can be trapped.
1: And when you say recruitment from social media, are you talking like they'll go as far as DMing or like private messaging, mm-hmm. whoever they're going after or their websites that these kids are going to?
2: Um, both. Um, probably more so the DMing um, aspect of things is that um, we've seen, Like so many of the pimps, they'll do what's called like they'll spam a whole school. So they'll take a middle school and they'll friend request 300 girls at the middle school. Well, out of those 300, let's say only 10% of them accept the friend request. So then you've got 30 girls. Well, then from those 30, you can... You know, that have, because not everybody has their social media on private. So you can obviously follow the ones that aren't private. But then even the ones that are private, parents are like, oh, well, my kid's account is on private, so nobody can get them. Well, they send a friend request to them and they say, oh, 30 of my best friends know this person. So they must be okay to friend request, you know? So then they accept it. And then even if they can get 10% out of that whole school, to befriend them. And they do what's called the Romeo pimp or boyfriend pimp. And they act really nice. You know, they aren't going to DM them and say, hi, I would like to exploit you. They're going to lure them into a false sense of security.
3: And that happens too. Like as Jess is saying, it's definitely not just middle school and high school. That can happen to a 25 year old girl, you know, who has grown up in, you know, a home that's didn't have a lot, you know, she was in poverty. And then, you know, she's looking for that love, looking for that attention. Someone happens to give it to her. And it's like, you think this is this is my prince. This is like, you know, my dream come true. This guy who buys me stuff. Like in the beginning, these guys are very doting. They know exactly what to say, um, very manipulative. And, you know, the girl just begins to trust everything they say and fall in love with them, essentially. That's why we see a lot of our girls they, they don't call him their pimp or their trafficker like he's their boyfriend because um, that's that's what he was in the beginning. That's what he still so calls himself even as he's you know pimping them out. Mm.
1: So, so, it's so definitely
3: t- any age.
1: Wow. So take us from that point. Let's say that that they are successful in luring in uh, the, the victim here. What exactly happens to that? to that person after the trafficking occur or after, uh, yeah, after the trafficking occurs. So physically, sexually, Mm -hmm. emotionally, you know, what exactly happens from there? A lot. (laughs) Um. Yeah, that's probably a pretty broad question. I mean, you know, you could start off physically, you know, are we, are we talking about, um, Manipulation using drugs, you know, mm-hmm. abuse, things like that before you even talk about sexual abuse. I mean, a
3: lot of it's going to be the verbal abuse to get them to do the physical things like the manipulation, like you said. So if they let's say it is, you know, the the boyfriend pimple, like we call him, he's going to say, you know, I love if I love if you. Uh, know that I love you um, you would do this for me like I want to build a life together with you we don't have enough money just do this for a couple months at a time you know it'll get us some money or if it is a drug thing maybe you know he's been a supplier for a couple months and it's like hey you think those drugs that you've been using were free you think this house that you're staying in was free like no you like you owe me a debt you have to work to pay it off um so it starts out really slow like that. Maybe they think, Oh, it'll just be one night, one time, you know, sometimes it's, Hey, just sleep with my friend this one time because, you know, we got the drugs from him and then pretty soon then it's multiple men each night and then it's every night after that. Um, so it just kind of escalates, but it starts with a lot of verbal manipulation. Um, and that continues definitely. Um, yeah, the amount of of verbal and emotional abuse is I don't, it's incomprehensible. Um, just like we see a lot of girls coming out of trafficking that have PTSD that have anxiety and depression, like out the window. Um, they, there there's just so much of that manipulation, um, during the entire process. Um, they, a lot of times we see that they'll drive a wedge in between anyone that the girl trusts, like any family member, any friend, they'll start maybe telling lies about that person saying like, you know, they haven't contacted you in so long. They must not love you. You know, your mom's, you said your mom was never around when you were younger. She must not care about you. Um, and so then pretty soon they're the only ones that the girl can trust. Um, and so we call, we call this whole process, um, trauma bonding, which is essentially when the victim connects and bonds with her trafficker during like the the horrible things that he's making her do that trauma. But then you also turn around and he's the one comforting her afterwards, buying her some nice clothes, saying things like, I'm so proud of you, like, we're going to get through this together. Um, And so it's just like, manipulation is like the only word that comes to mind, because it's just so horrible. Like, if you're in a healthy, emotional state, Um, we would never believe these things, but because it's been such a road of manipulation and of um, like just that, that wooing that we've talked about, um, you, the girl believes these things, you know? And so it's, she's not rational in her, in her thinking at all. And so it, it becomes, yeah, you, you believe whatever he says. And then if he chooses to call you a slut, a whore, beat you up, you know, like, anything like verbal like that you believe it like that shame is is just like dampening you know um so that's emotionally that's mm-hmm. <laughs> probably the, I mean a, a physical abuse is like happens a lot to like them getting beat up um with with the johns the people that buy them and also buy their pimp um life ex- expectancy is very low for girls that are in the life um either because of homicide or suicide, or the drug overdose is, that's very, very common. Yeah, Connection to
2: drugs is huge, Mm -hmm. I would say, because the the pimps have either used it as a way to control the girls, or the girls are also using it as a way to numb, because they don't want to remember what they're going through. So they continue to use drugs as a way to escape.
0: So, so this is this is the part, and, and I, I feel like we have to ask this question um, because I, you alluded to the fact that so much of what we think we know, we see on Law and Order, and um, taken, and um, I'm guessing it turns out that that's just not really what the what the case is, what the case really is. Take us through, you know, Faith. I think you had you had said that this becomes, you know, they say, oh, it's going to be one time, and then it becomes multiple times, multiple times a night. Take us through now, kind of the the sexual part of this. Um, it, it really is. I mean, it really is multiple times a night, every night, um, and then I'm guessing uh, that the people that are buying these girls, um, I would imagine, could be pretty rough in other ways. Uh, that things are, this sexual contact is not just what we would maybe consider typical. Can you talk about any of that um, that kind of leads to that increased trauma?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be like a romance movie, you know, um, very forceful. Uh, there's a stat that says, um, well, I'm sorry, I, I jumped tracks. Um, a lot of it's forceful and violent because that's what we've seen in the, we see in the porn industry. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of men that are purchasing sex are heavy porn users. And the stat that I was going to say is I found that 88% of porn videos, any kind of sexual video, is violent. Um 49% of them contain verbal aggression. And then in in porn videos, 95% of the responses from those violent acts or violent aggression was the women were responding like in a neutral way or showed pleasure from those things. So we're seeing a, comp- a complete skewed reality in porn. Men are watching that thinking, oh, this girl, you know, girls like this. This is okay to do to women. Um, I'm going to go do that. And then if they do purchase sex the girl she's there. She has to do whatever the guy says, you know, like he is paying for the ability to do whatever he wants to her. Um, I don't, I don't think it's things that we could ever imagine um, that happens. I've heard stories of things that, you know, have happened to women and things they're forced to do. And it literally makes you like want to throw up. It's so nauseating to think that one human being could make another one do the kind of things that he, he's making her do. Um Yeah. So then obviously from that, there is, there's a lot of, you know, STDs that are going around a lot of unplanned pregnancies and therefore like forced abortions, which, you know, if you have so many abortions in your life, that's going to impact your ability to be able to reproduce later, you know, on your own. Um, And so there's just that that trauma that carries out through their entire life, you know, we read it, we hear about girls that are, you know, raped one time in college, and they're suffering from it, mentally and emotionally 30 years later in their marriage, that's healthy and good, they still have like recurring either flashbacks, or they, you know, they, they can't experience any like pleasure in sex because of that one time rape, you know, which I'm not saying that that's, That is should happen, you know, because that was a horrible thing. But when we hear, you know, about girls that are being raped, like 10, 12, 15 times a night, for 10 years, like, that's obviously going to have like, unimaginable damage to them. Um, And physically too, you know, and that's why I'm really glad that you guys are doing this podcast, because we can talk about the things that you could see. Um, because eventually the pimp's going to have to take the girl to the hospital, you know, or call an ambulance if something bad enough happens to her. And that's, you know, the chance that you guys would get to be that point of contact.
1: Absolutely. And that's going to be one of the big sections that we talk about here in a little bit, because Mm -hmm. you know, not only for paramedic students, not only for current paramedics, but I mean, nurses, people, whenever these patients come into the hospital, we need to, we need to discuss, identifiers, you know, and I know that there are nurses, there are sane nurses, which are, you know, sexual assault nurses. Um, but I mean, we don't have anything like that in the pre-hospital field. So, you know, here in a little bit, I'd really like to bring that back up again.
0: Yeah. So before then, um, Jess, take us, take us through, um, where is this happening? Um, mm-hmm. You know, probably a lot of misconceptions about that, you know, the the seedy hotel with the weird, dangerous back alley, but where, where is this actually happening?
2: Now, what's sad is that it's happening everywhere. There's not a one size fits all because it does happen in the rundown hotels. Like a lot of times on our street outreach, there's several hotels that are known to be brothels. It's known when you go up to the third floor, you get off and then you say what kind of girl you want and they send you to that room. So there is that kind of, you know, on the back alleys, on the street type of thing. But a lot of it happens online too. So you can order a girl like you can a pizza. You go find a, you know, wherever it is, they go online and they say, okay, I would like somebody who is, looks like this, has this color eyes, this color hair, this nationality, and then she'll just show up at my door. Um, It's happening. Oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to ask, whenever you talk about online, are these, are these people having to try that hard or are they having to use the dark web or are they just going to a regular website?
2: Yeah, regular website. Um, <laughs> they're everywhere. And the girls advertise online all the time um, as a way to, you know, that's a big area of exploitation. A lot of girls that are being pimped out, their um, trafficker will also have a page for them on several different websites. Um, so that people can go browse and decide what they would like to order. Um, It also happens in, um, you know, people's homes. There was a girl, so sad, she was, um, her mom was a drug addict, gave her to her aunt and uncle. Her uncle started abusing her when she was in elementary school. And then he started selling her to her friends. So she would go to school during the day and seemed like a normal kid. And then she would go home at night and be raped several times for money for her uncle. And then she would go back to school. So it was happening in her own home. Um, it happens in um, the city in clubs, um, you know, hotels near the airport. Cause businessmen will fly in. Um, then they'll, you know, purchase sex and then fly right back out. Um, anytime there's a big like activities. So you hear Super Bowl is a really big attraction for trafficking, because you have a ton of people that are probably here without their families. Um, and it's a weekend a party. And so that's always a big um, attractor. Um, but then also several of the um, popular or well-known um, traffic bu- trafficking busts in the Atlanta area happened in Sandy Springs one of them it's an affluent neighborhood it was a looks like a really nice mansion house that this guy was holding some girls in and he would hold house parties and so men would come to the house party um, and then be able to purchase sex with the girls so it's really happening just about everywhere but it's so underground and people don't talk about it. So you don't know. Um, you don't know what you don't know.
0: <laughs> and that's another great point that, uh, you know, I think another misconception perhaps is that it's it's the, um, or, or that it's not the um, middle upper class uh, that is doing this, that you're not going to go to a nice place or you're not going to see a businessman. Um, and then so maybe you're not as as aware. Right.
3: When I when I do go into the clubs and do the ministry in there, like the clientele that we see is all over the board. Um, yeah, so that's kind of just speaks to if they're going to a club, you know, on a Friday night, they're probably doing who knows what else later that night. Um, and we know some of the clubs have more strict rules as far as what you can do. Um, they try to, some definitely hide it better than others, you know, but there's one that we went into recently and the house mom seemed really on top of her. The lady that kind of manages the girls in the back seemed really on top of her game as far as trying to keep track of, you know, the girls that were coming in, if they, you know, had like an emergency contact, um, if they had like an out of state like address, because um, those are a couple of the flags that we have, um, we've told her. And so, you know, she was on top of her game that way. And when I was talking to her, she reached over and asked one of the dancers there, like, Hey, what's the number one reason for you to get fired? And that girl said, "Giving my cash app away, which means like if I'm dancing on the floor and some guy wants to take me home with them, I just give my cash app and I go home with them. That's all that it is. It's yeah. And there's that, that is not traceable like at all, (laughs) you know, when it comes to the outside world. And so even just that, um, and, and she, that girl, like whoever is selling herself through cash app could totally have a pint back at the house saying like, you better have, you know, a thousand dollars on that cash app before you come home. And she might not make that just dancing. So,
1: and, and this may be an odd question, but is there sort of a chain of command, so to speak. I mean, if you have, let's say if you have one John who has several girls, is there like a hierarchy, you know, you have your, your newer girls versus your veteran girls, you know, is there a, are there common names? Are there common, uh, you know, common terminology that, you know, somebody in an ambulance or on a scene may hear and they should say, Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I mean, what kind of terminology are we working with here?
2: Um, So, yeah, there's definitely, especially with bigger, um, you know, rings that are going on, there is a hierarchy. And also one of the things that I've learned is it was shocking to me that a girl who had been exploited herself would then start to exploit others because I would think you what's happened to you and how awful it is, how can you now be doing that to other girls? But it's a way of protecting herself. And so a lot of times you'll hear people talk about a bottom girl, which means that she's the, she's working with the pimp and she's kind of the head girl. And so she keeps all the other girls in line. But in exchange for that, she doesn't have to be pimped out herself. Um, so it's a protective way. For her, it's like the survival mechanisms that kick in for her. Um, so, I guess bottom girl would be a terminology you'd hear. Um, not the word
3: girl, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just hear the bottom. I'm the bottom. <laughs> um, or, no, the word I'm not going to say just in case this is a clean podcast. <laughs> oh.
0: I <laughs> don't have the bleep button ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, like I'm a just, master of I'm editing.
3: That's what you might hear. You yeah. Know?
0: So let's, if we can, let's switch gears um, uh, just a little bit now, and let's kind of bring it around uh, to those that uh, that are that are listening. What are what are some of the reasons that uh, a person who is trafficked might come into contact with a medical professional, any medical professional?
2: Um, the reason I love so much that you guys are doing this is because um, the American Public Health Association did a study that shows that at least 50% of exploited um, women come into contact with healthcare professionals. Um, and a lot of times that's the only safe person that they'll see um, ever. But crazy that half of them um, will see healthcare professionals, yet there isn't like a wide variety of training for healthcare professionals. <laughs> Um, but a lot of times they'll present in the same ways that, um, other people do. And a big thing could be like, they have an overdose, um, or a lot of, um, different, um, dehydration, um, any type of injury that might look like some type of physical abuse, like she's been beat up. Um, any signs that you would normally see that happen with a rape, um, could be another thing. Um, that they could also present with um, like lots of anxiety. They might mental health um, a lot of times is a huge indicator of somebody that might present as like just some junkie because you have a girl who's terrified. She's not acting right because she's, anxious, going through PTSD, all of these types of things. And so she might just be seen as like oh, a crazy drug addict. Um, But that could be a huge indicator of somebody who's being trafficked. Um, Poor hygiene um, is another one. Um, And it could also be that she doesn't understand, isn't able to answer questions. Um, Usually the pimp will answer all the questions for her. Um, we've heard of several cases of women who have said that they were deaf or their, you know, their pimp might be with them, but also their pimp could be the bottom girl. So it might be that you have, you know, a 40 year old female that's with this girl. Oh, she doesn't know what you're saying. She's deaf. She can't answer your questions, um, because they are in control. So I guess those are some signs to look for. Um,
0: And they're likely never going to be alone.
2: Right. Yes definitely not likely to never be alone because um, they'll have their controller there that's going to be taken care of them. Now, sometimes they will if it's a situation that their controller is like worried that he'll get in trouble, especially with a lot of drugs involved. Um, but I would say more so than not, they aren't going to be alone. There's going to be somebody who seems very controlling A lot of times, it's an older guy with a younger woman who just seems—you know—you kind of get that feeling like this situation's just off. Um, So you start to ask those questions.
0: And what are they most likely referring? What who are the women? What who are the women referring to that person as?
2: Usually, a boyfriend, boyfriend, fiance. yeah, I would say boyfriend, fiance, some of them might say husband. Um, But you can tell that it's not a loving relationship. So I mean, that's a pretty big sign too. if she refers to Oh, my boyfriend knows this. Oh, I can't do anything without him. Um, He steps in and answers all the questions for her. Um, But yeah, that's definitely one way that they'll, you know, talk about it. And they won't know where they are. Like you start I'm just thinking through when you ask somebody like they're, you know, do you know where you are? Do you know your name? Can you tell me about this? You know, if they passed out or overdosed or something and now um, they're seeing you guys, they won't know any of the answers to those questions, most likely. And they won't and- have any ID or anything like that, because that will be mm. taken away as well. Yeah. And that's
1: a that's a big hint for EMS providers specifically, because most of the time we have to gather that. We have to gather ID, insurance cards, so on and so forth. Um, so, with that to say, likely these patients will probably not have insurance either. I'm guessing. Oh, no. So it's it may be no. kind of like a uh, self pay situation where the the boyfriend, so to speak, may pay for her. I'm mm-hmm. guessing. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Are there any kind of branding or tattoos or anything like that, that these girls may have?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The branding is a part of the manipulation and just kind of goes to that, the way that the pimp breaks the girl. Um, And it's sad. You think of branding as like shows ownership. Um, So there's the, Um, sometimes you'll see, I think it's probably one of the biggest like images that goes around is a barcode that you see on the girls. Um, but I would say more often than not, it's that particular pimps like name that they might have tattooed. Um, so it's a hard identifier if you aren't, if you don't know which certain things to look for in each community. Um, but what's really neat is now they're starting several you know, police forces or whatever are starting um, databases for certain tattoos. So they might know, well, look, this is common. We've seen three girls now come through with this certain tattoo, and they've all experienced some type of exploitation. So then that'll go into the database for this local area, like Cobb County, look for this
3: tattoo.
1: When we talk about specific injuries, you know, so we, we, you know, we just learned about uh, a high likelihood of drug overdoses, uh, specifically, I'm guessing heroin and things that opiates that Mm -hmm. highly addictive potential, uh, maybe altered mental status a little bit. What type of physical injuries? I mean, could we potentially have a certain type of bruising pattern on certain extremities or bite marks or things like that? Or is it just anything goes? I mean, what what have you guys seen frequently?
2: I would say more likely than not anything
3: goes. Faith, what do you think? Yeah, I would say bruising and cigarette burns would probably be common, which that's really obvious to see because those don't go away ever or too fast anyway. (laughs) Um, So I, I, that's something that I've seen in the club. that's really hard to like not know or notice, but not say anything about when I'm talking to a woman and she has them all over her body, you know, um, because that's very obvious to be able to tell what it, what that is.
1: <clears throat> so those aren't in one area in particular, those aren't in like more covered areas. Those could be on her arms Those those could be neck, wherever.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Typically when I've seen them, it's, there's a lot of them. Um, like it's, it's a frequent thing that happens to her. So.
0: Mm-hmm. So what, if, if there was a scenario where, Um, there, you know, someone called 911, maybe, maybe it was a bystander. Maybe it was, uh, you know, they, they overdosed. Um, there's a lot of things that have changed in EMS over the last couple decades. One of those is safety as far as in the back of an ambulance. Um, Mm -hmm. so I can imagine, you know, years ago, if the pimp does not want to be separated, refuses to be separated. Um, what kind of scenario would play out if, uh, EMS, uh, went out to one of these, um, scenes, and they determine that, yes, she does need to go to the hospital. And they say to the boyfriend, fiance, whomever, well, you can ride up front, but you cannot ride in the back of the ambulance with us. Um, it's, it can only be her. What, what, are, what would be kind of an expected response if people might get to that?
2: Um, the expected response would be absolutely not. He would say, then we don't want an ambulance. We refuse care yeah. um, because he's not going to let her out of his sight. Um, most likely. Um, Or if he really reluctantly says okay to that, you're going to see he's super nervous. It's not a normal response. He'll be really nervous asking a lot of questions, and most likely in the back, um, the woman won't be able to, you know, she'll be really sketched out and not answer questions, not make eye contact. Um, But that's one of the first things that even in the trainings we do with nurses, is we tell them isolation, interview, and assess danger. Um, because a woman's not going to identify in front of her trafficker, so isolation is huge. Finding a way to get her um, separated. So within the hospital scenario, it's getting them. You know, well, we have to go get an X-ray because there's no way that you can go in to get an X-ray. <laughs> um, with the woman, or like you said, riding in the back of the ambulance alone, nobody can come with you because isolation is definitely the first key. And then starting the interview process of asking certain questions. um, Like, you know, this person doesn't make you, it looks like you don't feel comfortable with this person. Do you feel safe? Um, And being that, becoming a safety net for her because um, she doesn't feel safe.
0: So, Faith, what are some of the expected answers to that? I mean, so, you know, the, do, do you feel safe? Is there any kind of way in a short, you know, say you can get this, uh, this person in the back of an ambulance or get them alone. How do you gain their confidence? How do you comfort them? How do you build, start to build a little rapport? And let me say, especially if you're a male um, versus a female in the back uh, with them, what are, what are some of the things you can use to kind of gauge the situation?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, definitely in the beginning, be kind of apologetic, um, not assuming anything, you know, like, hey, I just kind of noticed I could be wrong. Um, You know, not like, hey, you look like, you know, you don't like that guy. (laughs) Um, And so just kind of go into it being like, hey, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Like, I've noticed this. How do you feel about that? And Um, something that's coming to mind is their responses, like how they respond is probably more important than the words that they're actually saying. Mm. Um, These girls are in like, Uh, especially if it has been an overdose or if they are obviously they're calling an ambulance, they're not okay. Physically Um, they're going to be in a state of crisis. Um, They're not going to be very sweet. Probably, Um, you know, there's going to be curt answers, um, probably annoyed. You might get cussed out. Um, And so just that, that type of response is kind of key. Like they're on edge, you know, if they're used to always being with that trafficker, that boyfriend, you know, and then they're not with him. Um, it can be very alarming to them. Um, On one side, they might be thankful because he represents danger. On the other side, he's also their only safe person, you know, that she knows. And so where you can be a safe space, you're also kind of a threat because, you know, you're prying into her life. So I guess being aware that you might get some pushback. Um, I mean, even some of the girls, you know, when they come into our safe house, they want to be there. They're so happy and thankful to us. If they decide they want to go back on the streets in a couple weeks, like, they can turn like that. And then all of a sudden, we're the bad guys. We're keeping them in this house, you know. We're not letting them leave and all those different kinds of things. Um, And so just be aware of that. Um, And, you know, if she she does respond kind of rudely, like, don't be afraid to keep, maybe change your approach a little bit. Um, but don't be afraid to keep asking those questions because that's definitely a sign that something probably is going on.
1: So you said isolate, interview, and then what was the third piece of that?
2: Um, just assess the danger to see how wh- how you need to proceed from there. Um, sometimes it might be calling law enforcement on your way to the hospital and uh, arresting that person or making it to where he can't follow you into the hospital. I don't know how how much power the EMS has to make sure that the trafficker can't come visit her um, or how that works, but setting up those types of procedures where she might go into the system as a Jane Doe. I know at Grady Healthcare System, because we work closely with a nurse there, but if they know that a um, person is been trafficked, then they change all of her information to there's like, I don't know those right words, but there's some kind of coding they use to make sure nobody can come visit her. Um, so, types of things like that, if you assess that it is a really dangerous person that might be with her.
0: And in your experience, how, how, how much does law enforcement, um, you know, does this happen so much that law enforcement, they've kind of created separate task force to do this? Or will you get a, a, a regular, you know, a regular officer for lack of a better term to come in and start some sort of investigation?
2: Yeah. So, um, you might get just a regular officer that would come, but they do, the task force now in Georgia is growing, um, and also training is growing within the law enforcement industry so that they are able to notice and respond well um, to victims. But you're not always guaranteed that it will be somebody that's trained.
1: Do you mind if I, if I toss a couple scenario, scenarios your way? And you tell me what to do. Okay. So let, let's say that if you uh, after listening to this or after taking some type of training about extortion and uh, trafficking, what what should the paramedic do? Let's say if it's a patient refusal, if let's say a John calls her out there or calls us out there. Again, we're hitting all these signs of the patient's not making eye contact. She's claiming or he claims that there's a language barrier or she's deaf or something like that. You know, we're hitting everything you guys are talking about. Um, And it's a patient refusal. He says, I just need to make sure she's okay. She's not going to die. So on and so forth. And then we're not going to the hospital. We want to go back in service what do I do? Do I say, hold on right here? Or do I wait until after I get the signatures and go back in service to call somebody? And who do I call?
2: Right. Faith, you might be able to answer this better. I'm worried I'm going to give bad advice. <laughs>
3: no. my, well, my first thought is, Jess, um, I'll let you answer. But my only question is, are you guys allowed to say this person has to go to the hospital? Like we are not comfortable. No. Okay.
1: Yeah, so so the rules for us are if they're able to, if they're alert and oriented to person, place, time, and event, so on and so forth, if they are considered competent, then we cannot make them go because that's considered false imprisonment, and then we can be held liable for kidnapping.
3: Right.
2: Yeah. Um, is that also true for minors?
1: So minors, it gets a little fuzzy. Uh, There are a few situations to where if they're an emancipated minor, if they are married or or, uh, if it's a, a a minor who has a child who has been pregnant or who is pregnant, she's considered a legal adult at that point. But outside of that um, it's got to be the parent or the legal guardian or in a situation, if they're at school, the school resource officer or the nurse can delegate for them. Yeah.
0: And I'm, I'm sure the pimps are smart enough to know all that. Mm-hmm. and have yeah. all that in place um yeah so so typically like like brandon said if it's a parent and they're with a 14 year old and they say no i don't want her to go to the hospital well they can make that they can make that decision too unless sure. you know unless they are incapacitated on you know, if the person is unconscious then you can't really you know that that becomes right. a, a gray area and then we're going to get you know there, there there's going to be legal stuff going on there regardless but i think that what brandon's kind of alluding to is uh everything's on the up and up they you know they they don't they absolutely don't want to go to the hospital and we have no legal right to um you know essentially tackle them tie them up and throw them in the back of an ambulance
2: right so i would think that probably if you've exhausted all of the ways to try to get them to come, but they absolutely refuse. um, That it would be similar to what you would expect with um, if you're suspecting domestic violence, that after you leave the scene, um, calling and reporting. Um, And so reporting to local law enforcement. Um, Also, you can call the um, National Human Trafficking Hotline to report. Um, and then it could also be, if it's in the case of a minor, um, they go through a program called Georgia cares and they handle, um, all of the, they have to become wards of the state and stuff. So with minors, it's a little different. Our organization only does 18 and older. Um, so they would be a person to call. And even if you aren't able to rescue the girl that night, um, a lot of times if sh- there's multiple calls into the tra- um, trafficking hotline or local law enforcement, you know, they keep a record of, okay, we've had five suspected calls of prostitution at this house, and so then they might be able to do a raid. And we recently were, um, got one of those from Lilburn. Um, there was a house that had had several calls of prostitution going on, and we have one of those girls at our house now.
1: So, with your experience of actually performing exactly what we're talking about, going and saving these girls and pulling them out. Um, how, how dangerous would it be for the provider if we were still on scene and we just, just discreetly partner, still talking to them, still assessing the girl. And then we discreetly walk over to the ambulance by ourselves and on the radio say, Hey, can we get law enforcement en route to this location, possible human trafficking situation or something along those lines? Um, Mm -hmm is that a bad idea? Could that turn into a dangerous situation? What, what are your recommendations for that?
3: I would say no. Um, just cause it could escalate so quickly. And if it's just an assumption, there's much better routes to go, you know, and it de- definitely reporting it. Um, because yeah, I mean, I, on the police end, I think it takes a lot to be able to arrest somebody or to be able to, you know, do a even just a wellness check. is fine. But to do anything farther than that, it takes a lot more evidence, you know, than just someone suspecting it. So like Jess said, if you just report it, then later on, then the police could be involved. Um, but doing it on scene would probably be yeah, escalate yeah, it, you know, unnecessarily. And then also could be dangerous to the girl.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, and let's say the other situation that we wanted to talk about where we actually do transport the patient. Let's say we get them to the hospital um, and during that transfer of care, we tell the nurse immediately, you know, we don't call them in on the radio report and tell them that. But when we get there, we transfer care, pull the nurse aside to a private location and say, hey, I'm almost 100 percent positive. This is a human trafficking or a domestic violence situation. We need to protect her. We need to make sure that no, she has no visitors, so on and so forth. Um, is that enough? Or what if that nurse is like, eh, I'll make that decision for my own? I mean, you know, what, what should we do in that situation?
2: Um, I would think in that situation, it will have to be up to the nurse because she'll be the one continuing the care. Um, I'm not, how does like your reporting work when you do a report afterwards? Is that something you can notate in your report?
1: It is. Yeah, we can definitely note that in our patient care report, but I just, I would fear that it may be too little too late by that point. You know, the patient may get discharged uh, from the hospital by the time anybody gets a hold of that.
0: Yeah, they start getting scared that they're going to have repercussions. They start leaving, you know, against medical advice if they get any whiff of, Mm -hmm. oh no, you know, my pimp's going to get caught and the consequences for them may be severe.
2: Right. So I would say telling the nurse, but then if you feel like she doesn't seem to think it's a big deal, maybe ask for the charge nurse um, that's on shift that night and see if you can talk to the charge nurse, because she might be more likely to, you know, make sure she reports and follows up.
3: And the reality is like the biggest thing that the nurse is probably going to do is just give her some resources, you know, um, it, we found that it takes, it takes a lot for a girl to call a hotline and, and want to you want to leave the industry, leave, you know, that life behind. Um, and so it may just be that she comes to the hospital, she gets a list of resources, she gets that number, she leaves with a pimp, but she has that number with her, you know, and she has that resource for later. So, you know, if, if you are communicating with someone who maybe doesn't see it as a big deal, just kind of let them know, like, hey, at least can we talk to her and let her know that she's safe, that there's options for her, um, options for Options is just a good word to say. <laughs> we're not assuming anything of you, but also, like, we're here if you need anything. Um, and so just kind of, yeah, emphasize that, and that could be a, a good step.
0: So, so, like, so let me so No, go ahead, Jess. I'm sorry.
3: Well, I was just going to say on our outreaches,
2: um, we hand out, we call them hope cards, because they're like a business size card. They just say hope and have flowers on them and have a number. They don't have any identifier of it being Um, an anti-trafficking organization and so when we tell the ladies like you know if you need any help um or want different options call this number and then they have that for you know later on if they aren't ready to call right then
0: so i mean i mean what what you guys are describing i mean is is uh not just eye-opening but mind-blowing um How do you guys personally deal with this as you're, as you understand more, but as you deal with this every day and with these young women, um, how do you guys personally deal with this?
3: Therapy. (laughs) Like we definitely, definitely have to make sure we're doing our own counseling and a lot of self-care. Um, just that self awareness, probably the same thing that you guys probably deal with, you know, in your jobs too. Like, hey, I'm getting burnt out. You know, like, I need to take, I need to take this day just to myself. You know, yeah, a lot of self care, just being aware of that. Um, it helps that, you know, we have coworkers that are doing the same thing. Uh, we can talk about things. We know what the other one's going through, you know, what they've seen. Um, sometimes we're definitely joking about some things if it's appropriate, you know, to try to make light of the situation sometimes. Um, but yeah, just, and I think the times that we do see, um, something good happen, you know, that we, we do street outreach and then the girl calls the number and comes to our safe house and then goes to a long-term program. Like just if that happens once every like six months, it's enough of like, yes, to get us to go back out there and do it for another year. Um, just because when you hear about this and and you see it in real life, even if it's exhausting, like mentally, physically, emotionally, like I I forget who said it, but the quote is like, once, once you see it, like you're now responsible for it. Like you can't unsee it. And it's, you know, you're responsible to help. And so I think that's kind of what we all have. We started dabbling into it, volunteering, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, I have to continue doing this. Like, even if it's, even if it kills me, (laughs) but it's not going to kill me because I have good boundaries and self, self (laughs) (laughs) self-awareness.
0: Jess, how about you?
2: Um, uh, so many of the same things, um, like counseling, um, thankfully out of darkness pays for us to go to counseling and our, of ourselves. Like, so that's really awesome that they value that. Um, also one of my coworkers, Shannon, I love that she has a really long drive home, but she said there's a certain road sign that after she passes that road sign, it's kind of like a mental, okay, I'm leaving work here. And then I'm going instead of taking on everybody's trauma personally. Um, So, you know, having that disconnect of like, while I'm at work, I'm definitely a lot more connected and feeling the women. But it's really difficult for me. And Jason, you you probably knowing me and how I get invested um, with the lives of, you know, the girls that are there, it was hard to not carry that with me home. So definitely having that mind break of like, okay, work and home. And then being able to have somebody to talk to, like we have a great team um, that we can debrief with and say, this is really frustrating day. You know, I wanted to strangle this lady at the safe house. (laughs) Um, We can make jokes like they said that probably other people wouldn't think are funny because they're not funny things, but it's just how you have to get through the day. Um, is having those people around you. And um, I have a great family support too. So having a support system helps.
0: Well, and and unfortunately, um, not everyone does what you guys um, are doing with that counseling part. And I think that is uh, huge. And I think a a thing that is missed a lot. Um, As we kind of wrap up, one of the things uh, that we like to do um, with all of our guests, especially as we're going to talk about topics like this that are so heavy, can you share with us Just off the top of your head, one um, just success story of uh, maybe a girl that reached out to you that came out of trafficking um, and got their and their life has just turned around um, and they're now on a good track.
2: Um. Yes. So. The success story I love to tell, and it's what definitely keeps me going, is four years ago, I was on shift at the safe house one night, um, did an intake of a girl, and she had been um, just beat up by one of her Johns. Um, She was also high on heroin, just a really rough, messed up, um, but ready to start a new life. She was done. She said, I can't do this and live this life anymore. She made it through, um, went to her long-term program, graduated her long-term program, um, got involved in the ministry school through the Atlanta Dream Center, um, and now she's on staff, and we get to be on shift together. (laughs) And so cool to see the transformation. Um, She just got married in May. I got to be at her wedding, and she also just found out she's pregnant. So all of those things, it was so neat to see the the little joys in life that she'll say, like, even when we were planning her wedding, she was like, I never thought this would be me. I never thought I could plan a, like that. I would have a wedding that I could plan. And so it's so neat to just see the total transformation of the girl I met four years ago um, to who she is today. It's Definitely one that I go back to when I get discouraged. I'm like, no, but here's
3: one. Like, it was worth it.
1: (laughs) Faith, what about you?
3: Yeah, um, mine, I haven't had a lot of experience working in the safe house since I do a lot of the outreaches. Um, So, a lot of mine are just, you know, hearing stories of girls that are growing in their own, like, in their own walk, whether it's like emotionally or relationally. Um, And my favorite one is. Uh, actually, I just thought of another one I'd like to share. <laughs> um, so the, the first one is a girl that I met on my very first night of outreach. She's like, oh, my gosh, I've seen you here before. I know you, which could not have been true because I hadn't been there before. Um, but we got coffee a couple times and she ended up leaving, leaving the club, um, going uh, through like a detox program because and rehab because she was she was running drugs through there. Um, And now she got married, has a kid, we're Facebook friends. um, And she's always, she gives me like such nice things every Facebook post. Like, you're so amazing, Faith. Like, you're the best in the world. It's so like, oh, thank you. I'm not, but like sparks a little joy in me. Um, But the other one uh, is a girl that was also working at a club and she was doing hair at the Paul Mitchell School. Um, so she was someone who had, didn't have a pimp, definitely just on her own, like, I'm going to, you know, go to school and then, you know, dance to make money. Um, but we got to talk a lot about if that's the best option for her, you know, if she really is making that much money, if she doesn't, if it's, you know, tearing her soul down and making her anxious and she's having to drink constantly, you know, to be able to do what she's doing and then she's missing class the next day. Um, so she ended up quitting the club and uh just doing hair full-time when she graduated and definitely like uh she was from like a a church family i think her dad is a pastor and so she's really growing in like her walk with god which has helped like transform her life a lot too um so that it's yeah it's really really neat they're not as dramatic of stories but it shows that you know because we intervened they you know and they came to that fork in their life of maybe going one way and and starting to know, you know, prostitute or, you know, maybe getting a pimp that she went the other way and they decided to leave the industry. So,
1: so I have a couple of questions uh, as we're wrapping up as far as contact. Um, So when we talked about reaching out and what do we do to report uh, Jess, you brought up the national human trafficking hotline. Uh, What exactly is that hotline number?
2: Okay. National human trafficking hotline is one, Eight, eight, eight,
1: three, seven,
2: three, seven, eight, eight, eight. Awesome. And then you can also text because not every girl will have the option to call. But if you text the word be free um, to two, three, three, seven, three, three, that's also run by the national human trafficking hotline and then they'll find ways to get in touch. Mm.
1: Wow. And let's say if one of our listeners said, you know what, I want to, I I want to get involved. I want to help, you know, I want to help on my days off from the station or whatever. Uh, How can they do that? How can they reach out and find more information on you?
3: I just found something online. Actually, I did a quick Google before we did this podcast. Um, And there's something called HealTrafficking.org. And it's basically a, it's a protocol toolkit for anyone that's in the healthcare field that wants to learn more. And I think it's, it's trains you and then also is in a format that you can train other people. So if they want to learn more, maybe it it might have a lot more detail about exactly what questions to ask. um, And that kind of thing, maybe we didn't cover, um, you know, as much detail as we could have that that's a really great resource. Um, And then you guys can always come work with us, volunteer with us. Um,
0: Yeah. Give us your website and your contact information. How do people get in touch with you?
2: So they can contact. Um, my email is Jess at ATldreamcenter.com. And Faith is faith at ldreamcenter.com. Um, the website, they can either go to outofdarkness.org. And find information there or atldreamcenter.com because they're a parent organization. They'll have information there. That's how you can sign up to like do Princess Night. You can come do street outreach with us on Saturday nights
3: um yeah so a great there's a way to lot, get lot involved. of things like online if people want to just start following like through social media there's so many different groups um there's one called gems that does ministry in new york um there's some global ones uh, international justice mission exodus cry free the slaves um that you can start you know hearing hearing these stories of girls and boys like getting rescued um little tidbits of information to tell you how to be more aware um there's a there's a ton of things thankfully, that people are becoming more aware of, um, and getting shared more.
1: And is there a, uh, is there a place for healthcare providers in your organization, such as paramedics, nurses, or is there a place for, uh, police officers and law enforcement specialists to help with, you know, picking the girls up or screening the girls?
2: Yeah. So we have several, um, Healthcare professionals and law enforcement that are on our volunteer teams. Um, we personally don't go into like the dangerous situations as an organization. We do have rescue teams, but the women are already in um, a safe place. So they're like this one that we just had in Lilburn, the police did the raid and then we picked her up from the police station. Um, but as far as within our organization, one of the we have a registered nurse who helps do training to other nursing students or at hospitals. And so she's on our ambassador team. So when we get speaking requests or she will go seek them out and she does a lot of trainings um, at Kennesaw State University. Um, So things like that are definitely needed because we don't have enough and would definitely be of help to be able to train more, to raise awareness, um, to be able to go you know, once the a certain like once an EMS provider has gone through the training, and then they can go do other trainings for EMS professionals.
0: Well, Jessica and Faith, thank you so much. Um, this this has been just absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, thank you for sharing uh, that work. And I really, I really think that uh, based on what you've shared. Um, there will be other lives that are
1: impacted by um, the people that listen
0: to this. So thank you.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been great to be here.
1: You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.